Good morning, friends. Oh, good, good, good. So glad you're here. Great to see you again. Uh, So honored to get to preach again. So what I told first service was either last week didn't go really well, so Greg's giving me another shot, or it was all right, and so I get to go again. So it's so good to see you guys, and um, such an honor to, to be able to be with you. Love this church. Love, love what God is doing here. And I love this series that we're in. And man, how good was that testimony? I mean, it, it, I think it's, uh, yeah, you can clap for that. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, friendly reminder. This is participatory, so that'll be good. Um, I think it's really easy for us to watch the news and see legislation that's coming through and see uh, nonsense the HS is putting out and all kinds of stuff and get really discouraged um, about this next generation. And I think when you see stories like that, you're reminded that God is moving in this generation and this generation is hungry to get to know him. Amen? He is not done with this generation. This generation uh, is not, um, you know, they're, 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 they want Jesus. They just want a real encounter with him. The thing that I appreciate about Gen Z is that they're not willing to live off of your faith. That's a good thing. Gen Z is not, not willing to just say, oh, mom and dad say so, or my grandparents say so, and I'm just willing to live off of that. They want their own true and authentic encounter with Jesus and his scriptures. And that's, I'm telling you, friends, that authentic, brutal approach to following Jesus is exactly what we need in the world right now. We need a generation to be raised up who says that following Jesus at all costs is what matters most. That, that this generation, listen to me, this generation following Jesus, it actually costs them something differently than it did you and I. And we need to love them, support them, encourage them, and, and, and help them encounter Jesus for themselves. Amen? And that's really what we're going to look at today, is what does it look like for us to position ourselves, to position our families, to position our kids, to position our grandkids to encounter Jesus? Because you have a role to play in that. You have a role to play in helping this generation encounter a real and authentic Jesus. And um, we've been in this, we've, we're going through this series called The Story, and we, you know, we started at creation, and we've, we've seen God move through there, and then he creates, a, he, he has his people, the Israelites, and they go through exile, and, and, and he delivers them from that. And then now we're in this time of the judges, and they're begging God for a king, and Jesus is going, hey, or God's going, I'm your king, you don't need one. And they're going, but we still want one, so we're going to have to work through that. Um, and we're seeing, and this is how I explained it at 180 at youth group. If you don't come to 180, come hang out. It's a good time. I'll be preaching there tonight too. Um, what we, what I, the way that I've explained it to 180 is, is, is if you look at this narrative of the Bible, you see humanity continually making decisions to step away from God. You see it over and over again. God's saying, go this way. And they're like, mm, we know better. We'll go this way. Over and over again. But watch the faithfulness of God over and over and over and over again. That despite humanity's decisions to repeatedly walk away from him, he stays in constant pursuit of them. We even looked at this last week with the story of Ruth and Naomi. That here's, here's Ruth and Naomi, widows, no, no inheritance, no sons, no, like their husbands had died. Ruth, a Moabite from Moab, who's a Moabite, right? 
And, she, and, and, and the only way for them to be brought back right, because this is a patriarchal society, so, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, this patriarchal society. And so these women, the only way that they have rights is through uh, the male side of their family, and they don't have those, and they have to be redeemed. The only way for Ruth and Naomi to be brought back into right relationship in their family is if someone who has the power, who can actually do the redeeming, redeems them. That they were without hope, they were, they were without privilege, they were without inheritance. And Boaz comes along as this kinsman redeemer. You can watch last week's sermon online. And he redeems them fully. And friends, that's good news for you and I. Because in the same way, God is repeatedly foreshadowing his, his, him bringing the Savior. Boaz is a foreshadow of that, of this kinsman redeemer, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. That despite our repeated steps away from God, God says, I will demonstrate my love. Listen to this, Romans 5.8. That God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's good news, friends, that God's love was not conditional on us getting it together before he was willing to send Jesus, that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still broken, while we're still trying to figure out, he still saw it fit to send Jesus to give us redemption and to redeem us. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to jump into the story of Samuel and Eli today. Um, if you've got your Bibles or your phones or whatever, notes are, notes are in the app. Uh, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to rip through a bunch of the, the story today. And, um, and, I, and I can't wait to unpack for us here a little bit of what does it look like for us to live with eternity in mind and position ourselves and our lives to encounter Jesus. So let's open up 1 Samuel chapter 1. Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanon, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuha, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite, and his two wives, one called Hannah and one called Peninnah. Peninnah had two kids, but Hannah had none. Good place to start, right? You don't know if I said those names right or either. I just went, I just flew through those things. You're like, man, he got those, nailed them. Sure did. Sure did. Why would we start there? I think it's really important for us to understand the context of this story that we really understand, first of all, that this is a different time period of how they looked at family. This is different than, than how we look at family now. This is a patriarchal society where, where possessions and wealth and power w- were distributed through, um, through the male lineage. And so if you, it, you know, just like we looked at last week, um, Naomi, when her husband died and her sons died, she needed redeemed. So the, the author is real, it's really important as the author sets this up that we understand. You see all those male names of this lineage. They're pointing out the importance of, of for this family line, line to be sustained, it has to come down through, uh, through the male, which it doesn't work like that now, right? This is different. So, but it's important as we unpack this story that we understand culturally we're looking at a different time in a, in a, in a cultural structure that's different than our own. Verse 3. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at Sh- uh, Shiloh. So he'd go to sacrifice. Where uh, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the two sons of the priest Eli, were there. Well, talk about them a little bit later. They're a mess. Okay. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife, Peninnah, and all of her sons and daughters. But Hannah had a double portion because he loved 
her. And the Lord had closed her womb because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Her rival kept provoking her. Peninnah kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Uh, that's just mean. Like, that's not kind. And, and I want to stop for a second and, and unpack this for a minute because, again, we, we have to remember the text. We have to think about this culturally and be culturally intelligent as we're looking at this text. Because as, as, as we read those passages of, of even, like, the Lord closed Hannah's womb, we can— we, Here's the deal. Um, this text was written to a different culture in a different time with a different understanding of, of how the author would have written this. And in a room this size with this many people, and, and those of you watching online, I don't doubt for a minute that there's some folks in this room who, who are currently struggling with in, infertility or have struggled with infertility in the past. Maybe you've got kids that are struggling with that. Like I'm not, I, I, I'm sure that there's even some folks either in this room online that maybe you've even had a, had a miscarriage this week. And, and, and I don't want to gloss over this scripture because I think the temptation would be to not use good theology and not use good exegesis and actually insert your name into this story where Hannah's name is. And don't do that. Listen to me. Don't do that. That's, that's not what the text is saying. You have to, again, understand this is a patriarchal society that understood um, how things were handed down generationally, men to men to men. And so if you, are, have, if you have struggled with infertility or you're struggling with infertility right now, maybe your kids are, I just want to pray the grace and peace of God over you and just say, I'm sorry. Like, I, 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 I don't, again, don't, don't use bad theology and bad exegesis in this and insert your name into Hannah's spot. This isn't a word for you. This isn't a, that's not a message for you. That's not a scripture for you to live into. That's not, how it work, that's not how it works. That was their cultural understanding at the time. And I really just want to pray a blessing over you. Because when I was growing up, it, like, we didn't really talk about infertility. Like, I remember when my wife and I first got married, and we started having friends that struggled. And all of a sudden, I'm like, no one had talked about that until our friends started having, having struggles. And that was a, it's, it's been a hard journey. And I just want you to hear me. Like, I, I just want to pray over you that the peace of God that transcends all understanding would guard your heart and your mind's as you work through this and you struggle through it, or you have. That the peace of God that transcends, that goes above our understanding, we don't understand it, it's brutal, it's hard, people say stupid things to you, you're trying to walk this out, you're trying to be faithful, you're trying to, to live in faith in the midst of this struggle, and I just wanna pray the peace of God over you that transcends, that goes beyond our understanding to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, that the peace of God would guard how you feel, that it would guard, guard any angerness or guard, guard any bitterness, as you, as you wrestle with God through that, it would, that he would protect your mind from, from destructive thoughts, that, that it's something you're doing or not doing, that, that, that you would just sense the peace of God rest over your heart even now as you walk that road. And listen to me again. Do not, for an instance, in this story, insert your name where Hannah's name is. That's not how that works. And so, 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 so we're gonna move, move through the story, but I just didn't want to gloss over that and just wanted to just take a second and just pray the peace of God over you and your home and how you're working through that. We love you. God's with you. Just pray the peace of God over you. Amen? Amen. So let's jump back into the story. So Hannah's struggling with infertility. 
Penanin's being a total punk. Um, that's a Greek word. Um, <laughs> verse 7, this went, year, this went on year after year. Uh, whenever H- H- Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her uh, to the point where Hannah would weep and would not eat. That's just mean. So brutal. Her husband, Elkanah, uh, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? He's trying to comfort her. Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? He's trying to even say culture. Like he's trying to give her an out. Like, hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. We're together. Like this, don't I mean more? And she's just struggled for years and years and years. And it's just, it's just really hard. Verse number nine. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh at the temple, Hannah stood up. Now the Eli, the priest, was sitting by his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember, remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give, you, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of, of, of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She's making a Nazarite vow. You can look that up later. Nazarite vow to the Lord. She's saying, if you will answer my prayer and give me a son, I'm not going to keep him. I'm not going to hold on to him. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to raise him. I'm going to give him back to you, Lord, in your service. That's a big statement for somebody who struggled to have a kid, isn't it? Like that's massive. That is a massive, massive thing. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth moving. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, uh, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. Eli, Eli, Eli. And, she, and, he, and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Eli's, Eli's missing the whole sympathy and empathy thing right here. Just, just missing it. She says, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who's deeply troubled. I have, been, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I am pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman, for I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli said, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She said, may your servant find favor in his eyes, in, my, in your eyes. And she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped God there, worshiped the Lord and went home. Elkanah made, Elkanah made love to his wife and the Lord remembered her. And so over the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I have asked the Lord for him. This is, this is pretty incredible to, to see God answer her prayer. And she, she remembers um, the, the, the vow that she had made to the Lord. And so what this text tells us is that she raised Samuel until he had, if, uh, while she was breastfeeding him until he was weaned old enough to be without his mom. And in that culture, that would have been somewhere between the ages of two and four. So she's raising him, she's breastfeeding him, she's holding him, she's watching him play, all that kind of stuff. And she remembers the commitment that she had made to God if he would just answer her prayer. And she takes, after she had weaned him, she takes Samuel back to Shiloh, back to the temple. And she sees Eli, and she says to Eli in verse 25, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I'm sure she's going, hey, I'm the one you thought was drunk, not so drunk, baby. Okay. She reminds Eli who she is. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I have asked, so now I give him back to the Lord. 
For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord and he will, we will worship the Lord there. Watch her response. It challenges the daylights out of me. She'd been begging God for a son, begging him. And she has this child and watch her response because I don't know that I would have been this open-handed if I'm really honest. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance, O God. There is no one like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no one like the rock, our God. Hannah had prayed and prayed for years for this son, and she teaches us something here. Don't miss this. Hannah, Hannah, this story, which was thousands of years ago, she teaches us a lesson about God and how he works today. Listen to this. So I said it in our notes. It's an important lesson. The Lord can be trusted with whatever he entrusts to you. The Lord can be trusted with whatever he entrusts to you. Because somewhere along the line, in like our American understanding of Christianity and this Americanized version, it can get perverted. And we can think to ourselves that, that we need to hoard and hold on and protect and secure. This is how I say it in our notes. We must resist the urge to receive and secure. Instead, we must be people who receive and release. Because when we, when we become a people who receive and release, we recognize where these good gifts come from. We're recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. It's his to begin with. That it's not our responsibility to receive and hoard and secure and be fearful and live in scarcity and wonder if there's enough and will I have enough. And especially in these days where all you hear on the news is scarcity and food shortage and blah, 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 and all the things that are going on. Our call as believers is to live with an eternal mindset that God is still in control, that God is going to provide, and that as God entrusts things to us, it's our responsibility not to take those things and hold on to them, but to be instruments of an eternal perspective and release them back to his kingdom for his use. Amen? Our call is to live with eternity in mind. Do not worry about tomorrow, for today has enough worries of its own. What if we looked at our finances that way? When is enough enough? Have we even asked ourselves that question? With our finances, friends. When is enough enough for us? When do we need to take what God has given us and and instead of holding on to this, open our hands and say, God, it's all yours to begin with. What do you want me to do with it? What about our kids? What if, what if as we were raising our kids, instead of trying to hang on to them and, and, and protect them at all costs and keep them from the world and all these things, we said, God, you trusted me. You knew that this, you, you knew that, that I'll, I'll just tell you my prayer. God, you knew that Annalie and Isla were born into this generation at this time. God, whatever you want to do with Annalie and Isla, God, I trust in the same way that you've entrusted me to them, that I'm going to entrust them back to you because you knew, God, that you were going to, you were going to birth them in this season, in this time of the world. Like, what do you want to do with them, God? 
Like I would love, you know, that, that, that whole American dream thing. And, and if this, don't, don't hear this as an either or as a correction. I'm just, I'm just talking through here for a second. Like I think it'd be great to grow up and my kids kind of, you know, you know, it, it, it kind of sounds cool like for them to stay close to home. And, you know, and if that's what God has, that's great. But I want to be a parent who says the destiny over my kids that God has is more important than my preferences. And I'm going to trust my kids' destiny to the Lord no matter if it means they're five minutes down the road or 5,000 miles around the globe. Because them living out the destiny that God has put inside of them is way more important because I want to live with eternity in mind even when it comes to my kids and their destinies. What does it look like for you to even look at your career and your calling? Not just look at like at what would be fun or, you know, like, like I think kingdom work is fun. I'm saying like, or, or like I got to make all this money, all this thing. But God, whatever you want to do with my life, it's, it's yours. My kingdom, the, the calling you've put on my life is yours. Because God can be trusted with whatever he entrusts to us. And Hannah understood this. She models this for us. I'm sure she, there was times where she was holding that baby and nursing him where she thought, man, maybe I should just keep him. Maybe I should just keep him close. And she said, no, 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 no. I've made a commitment to God and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give Samuel back to the Lord because that's what I told the Lord I was doing. That's the best, him being in the center of God's will is the best place for him. The center of God's will is more secure than his mother's arms. So Eli has two sons. They're idiots. Um, I mean, they're dumb. Um, I'm sure that's in the Greek again. Or, um, well, this would be Hebrew. Forgive me, scholars. Forgive me. This would have been Hebrew. I'm sure it's Hebrew. Um, they're doing stupid stuff. So Eli's sons are growing up in the temple, and they're, they're not following God's commands as they work in the temple. They're, they're taking meat. They're, they're doing things they shouldn't do. And it infuriates God that they're mis, mistreating his temple, uh, his presence. Um, and so the Lord, re, Eli does not, Eli's like, stop it, guys, and doesn't really do anything about it. And so God's not pleased with that. And so God tells him, like, Eli, your line is done. And Samuel's watching all of this play out even, even as a young boy. He's watching all this, and, and watch what Samuel's response is to. So, so he's watching Eli's sons. They're like the older kids. They're growing up in the temple. Samuel's watching this, but watch what Samuel says. This is what, Samuel's, uh, this is what Samuel does. So the boy Samuel continues to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. He's, even as a child, Samuel's growing up in, with favor in God's eyes, and not only with God, but with, with people, which is going to be a huge part of this story as we look ahead. Because as Samuel grows up, he becomes the mouthpiece for God to this generation. He becomes the one who calls out the king. He's the one that starts rebuking the king. Like he's, he, Samuel, Samuel's destiny, Hannah didn't know what Samuel's destiny was going to be, but she positioned Samuel to experience the presence of God and live out his full destiny, which we find is a, is a huge player in God's story. And he's growing in favor with God and with man. And so then the, the story fast forwards here. And, 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 and usually when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, we usually look at this story from the perspective of Samuel. So if you've heard this story before, you, and, and, and we usually hear this story from Samuel. But I want you to do something different today. I want you, as I'm teaching through this, I want you to watch Eli. I want you to watch Eli's response. 
The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. So although the Israelites had been hearing from God over and over and over and over again, this was a time period where those visions and those experiences with God were not very often. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. What a cool place to grow up next to the ark where God's presence rested. Then Samuel, forgive me, then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here am I. And he ran to Eli. Here am I, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. Sounds like a night at the coffin house. My kids, okay, so real quick, anybody else's kids do that? Where you're like sleeping in the dead of night and they're like, hey, I can't sleep. Go back to bed, dude, seriously. Or like your kids ever do this where like you're sleeping. This has nothing to do with the message, by the way. I'm just getting some empathy as a parent here. And you're sleeping in your bed and then all of a sudden you feel a presence. (laughs) You're just like, and it like wakes you out of this dead sleep and your kid's like three inches from your face. You're like, hey, I can't sleep. It's like, yeah, me neither. Thank you. Go to bed. That's what I think Eli's doing. There's no exclamation points with Eli's response. So clearly he's a better parent than I would have been or am. But okay, back to the text. Then the Lord called Samuel again and said, here am I. And he ran to Eli and he said, here am I. You called me. But Eli said again, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So Samuel went and lied down. Again, the Lord said to Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? My son. I think he was like, My son. That tone, right? The dad voice. Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Check this out. Samuel, although he had grown up in the temple, he had been around. He was sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant. Listen to this. Don't miss this, parents. Don't miss this, grandparents. Don't miss this, spiritual mothers and fathers. He did not know the Lord yet, although he had grown up in it. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8. Watch Eli. Don't miss it. Watch Eli. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here am I. You called me. Listen, don't miss this. This is good stuff. Then Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you again, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went down and laid down in that place. Remember, just a verse before, it said that Samuel did not yet know the Lord yet. It's Eli who recognizes the voice of God in Samuel's life. Verse 10. The Lord came and stood there calling out another time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, just as he'd been instructed by Eli, speak, for your servant is listening. This is an incredible lesson for us. As parents, as grandparents, as aunt and uncles, as spiritual mothers and fathers. And let me talk about spiritual mothers and fathers here real quick. It's easy to hear stories like this and and 
kind of be like, well, I, I don't have kids or, or, you know, I don't, I don't really have a place with this. Remember Eli's, Eli's not a parent. He's not Samuel's parent. Eli's in this role as a spiritual father to Samuel. And so don't underestimate for a minute your role in being a, a, a voice of, of encouragement for this generation. It's not tied to a bloodline. It's not tied to being a mom or it's not just tied to being a mom or dad or grandparent or aunt, uncle or whatever. Your responsibility, listen to me, church, our responsibility is to not only live our faith out, but to help the next generation realize the voice of God in their life. Our young people need our help in us going to them and saying, oh, yeah, that, 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 that voice that you're hearing, that prompting, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You should totally do that. Hey, you're going through a hard time right now. Like, don't, don't, don't worry. God's walking with you. He's going to be with you. Like you can play that role in a young person's life and they need you to play that role in in their life. Many times we miss out on opportunities to shepherd our kids because we lack the proximity of the moment at hand. Because our schedules are so busy, because we're running after this thing or that thing. Like, what would it look like if the most important thing for our children was setting up, setting up our lives in a way that introduced them to their own encounter with Jesus? Like, look, look, look at Samuel's life. He's, he's spending his life in the temple. Like, Hannah had made this incredible sacrifice to give him back to the Lord. Eli comes along and says, hey, Samuel, don't worry. That's the voice of God in your life. We need more Elis for this generation. We need you to, sp- to step up and speak up and live a life so determined on encountering Jesus that, it's, that, that, a, that the younger generation can't help but say, I want what they have. Whatever that Jesus is, whoever that Jesus is, I want that Jesus. And so, 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 so with, with that in mind, like, like we, I think we have got to be really honest of, of how we look at our lives and what the priorities of our lives are because it's so easy for us to, to run after the idol of sports or the idol of, 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 uh, of business or the idol of sometimes family can be an idol. Like, like whatever the idol is, it's easy to run after those things. Listen to me. Hear me out. None of those things are bad until they become such a priority in our family that it's taking us away from the things that God would desire most with eternity in mind. And so my wife and I, one of the spiritual fathers in our life, we heard him say this, and it just wrecked us. This was a while ago. He said, he said I, he says, I think my responsibility as a parent is to help my kids encounter Jesus. And I'm going to put them in positions to encounter Jesus so that as they grow up, they're so familiar with the presence of God, it becomes their normal. And so that began to put my wife and I on this journey of what does it mean for us as parents to position our family, to live in a way that we position our families to encounter, our family to, and our kids to encounter Jesus. And I just want to share a few things that, that, that are, are things that we've decided as a family that we're going to do. And here's the thing. You're going to hear this list, and you're going to be like, yeah, bro, duh. It's, this, isn't, this, isn't, like, this isn't fancy stuff. This isn't going to be like, y- y- you've heard these things before. 
But I think there's a different thing of just hearing a teaching, but actually being willing to internalize it and make changes to the way that we live our lives so that we actually live our lives in a way that positions ourselves to actually encounter Jesus, not just by what we say, but by what we do. That our schedules and our lives actually change to put us in position to follow Jesus and that our kids see that as their, the primary focus of our family. Like as our family, like, yeah, yeah, like we love sports, we do the sports things, we do, the, we, we do these things, but nothing will take the place in my family, listen to me, nothing will take the place in my family of my family's pursuit to follow Jesus wherever he calls us to go and whatever he calls us to do. And so here's three things, really simple. I want to encourage us in this morning. Here it is. The first one is this. I want our family. How do we position our lives and families to encounter Jesus? It starts with people. I want my family to be in relationships with people that don't just know Jesus, but that are hungry for him. That are, that are so hungry with Jesus that their lives point my kids to who Jesus is. I want friendships in my life that aren't just built around hobby. We're really good at gathering around hobby. But what if our hop, one of our, our primary motives became not just living our lives for something else, but being in relationship with people who are so hungry for Jesus that that became the dominant force of our relationship. Yes, have, have other friendships. Yes, do all those things. But we need relationships in our lives that model hunger for Jesus. I can't be the only voice in my kid's life that demonstrate who Jesus is for them. I want my kid, like, like here's a, here's a, here's a, like, I want my kids to have friends who are hungry for Jesus. I want them to have, have, have adults in their life that are hungry for Jesus. I want them to, to be in environments and places. The second thing is this. I want my kids to be in places I want my kids to be so familiar with the presence of God because they, they've been in rooms and have experiences where the Holy Spirit rests. So like we as a family have chosen to go to certain places and be in certain rooms, those things where the Holy Spirit comes and rests. Why are Sunday mornings so important for you and your family? Because it's a place where you can come and experience the presence of God and, and learn and grow and become familiar with him. Like I want my home to be a place where, where my kids go, oh, I know what Jesus, I know what the presence of God feels like because that's what home is. Like even yesterday, we took our kids. It, it, it's, it was not convenient, by the way. We took our kids to a conference up in Indiana Westland. I had a friend, a friend who was preaching up there and there was gonna be worship and stuff. And we took our kids up there just to be in the room, just to be in a room with a thousand people who are worshiping the Lord. And my kids, you know, they're doodling, they're running around. But the presence of God, listen to me, the presence of God transcends the doodling. It transcends the running the aisles. It transcends those things. And they become familiar with God's presence because they're in a room where God's presence rests and they see people worshiping God. Like even now, there's mamas walking babies in the back room. They're, 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 they're bouncing their toddlers. This is what we have to see is people saying, I'm going to orientate my life so much to the presence of God that no matter what, I'm going to be in places and with people who are so hungry for God that as my kids grow up, they're going to eventually have, they're going to have their Eli moment. I'm going to have so much proximity to my kids that they're going to go, Dad, what is that voice? I'm going, Annalie, that's God speaking to you. They're going to recognize that because they're, they're so familiar with it because they've been in those places and they've been around people. And friends, we've got to do things. I want to be, I want to have activities that point us 
to Jesus and his movement in the world. Listen, I'm all about prayer closets and having your quiet time. Do those in front of your kids so they see them. Like, I want my kids to learn how to pray because they hear dad pray. Or they hear you pray. Or they hear uh, 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 another person pray. That, that, that they're in these places where they're learning to pray because they, they're hearing believers who believe that God is going to move. It becomes their vocabulary because they're in those relationships to hear people pray. One of the things that we did, and by the way, we've screwed a lot of this up too. Like this isn't like, like sometimes you can hear this and be like, oh man, their family must be really great. I've got all kinds of great stories of how I've screwed this up. You can ask me, you can ask my wife. We've got all kinds of great stories. Um, screwed this up plenty of times. Plenty of times. But one of the things we would even do when our kids were little, we still do this, is like, like, like if, if, um, if, if somebody wants to be prayed over, we invite our kids to come lay hands on them too and pray over them too. Because there's no junior Holy Spirit, friends. The same Holy Spirit that lives in you is the same Holy Spirit that lives in your kids. Their powers are just as powerful as yours. And I'm going to position my kids and my family as much as I can, despite my failures, despite the time where they wake me up in the middle of the night and I yell at them, despite the places where I fail as a dad, I want them to be so intoxicated with the presence of Jesus and so in love with Jesus because they've seen it modeled over and over and over and over and over and over again. I saw this in my grandparents. When my grandfather would come home from work, he would um, go feed, he had like 15 raccoon hunting dogs. Like he was a hunter. I I mean, had like national champions. He had somebody offer him $12,000 for a coon dog one time. That's something. Okay. Um, but I have vivid memories as a kid. I'd watch my grandpa, grandfather, he'd do his chores. And as soon as he got home, I mean, this guy was working 10 hours a day. He'd come home, do his chores, and he would sit in that chair before dinner and he would just read the scriptures. I have memories of my grandmother walking through the house, singing songs, singing old church hymns and the Gaithers and all this stuff. And she just worshiping the Lord. That's, that's the legacy that they've left. I'll never forget a phone call I had with my grandmother. She had cancer. She was in the nursing home. She was in her 80s at the time. And I said, June, June, how's things going? She goes, well, I really wish I wasn't in here. But Zach, there's a lot of people in here that need Jesus, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. Like, here she is. I mean, she's struggling, and she, her, her, the commitment of her life in that moment. She could have complained. Friends, that can be the legacy of your house. That can be the legacy that you leave. What does it look like for you to find people and places and things where you align your life so intently with encountering Jesus it's not a magic formula. It's not a potion. There's still going to be struggle. There's still going to be hard things. But I love, I love what happens in verse 19. Here as we close. Band, if you guys want to come on up. 
The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of the words fall from, of, from his mouth fall to the ground. The Lord was with Samuel, and as he grew up, he let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel ends up being a key player in the story of God. Friends, we never know who we're raising, the kingdom destiny that God has for them. I don't think for a minute Hannah was like, hey, I got it. Samuel's going to be the next prophet of God. I don't think that ever crossed her mind. But she was committed to doing everything that she could to position her life and his life to encounter Jesus. So, so, so let's position ourselves, let's position our lives, let's position our families, let's position our spiritual mothers and fathers, the relationships that you have. Let's position ourselves so close to Jesus and have such proximity to young people that there's going to be this moment that, that, that they're going to have their Samuel moment where they're hearing the voice of God and you're going to be able to be there and say that is God speaking to you? And I can't wait to see and listen to those kids say, yes, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. Can we do that? Can we commit freshly to that today? So here's the question as I close here. What's, what is one place? What's one step? People place their thing. What's one place that you need to take a fresh step in positioning your life with eternity in mind to encounter the presence of Jesus? Take one step today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, I just pray blessing over, there's, I, I, God, I don't doubt for a minute there's some folks in here that just, this, they hear a message like this and they're like, man, I've dropped the ball. Friend, there's still time. God, I pray blessing over my friends. God, may we be people who position our lives to encounter you freshly. May we be people that seek and hunger, to th- that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be filled. And God, that we would, we would bless this next generation, not with, not, not with more wealth and houses and, and business acumen and all these other things, God, but that our, the greatest blessing, the greatest thing that we would give this generation is teaching them and showing them that encountering Jesus is what will last. That when we seek him, we'll find him. And we seek him with all of our heart. God, I just pray encouragement over young families who are just in the thick of little kids right now. God, that you would bless them. God, I pray for for parents of adult kids, God, who feel like they failed. God, bless them today. Give them courage. God, send revival to this generation. Lift them up. Amen. Amen.